My name is Zach Thompson. I'm on staff here at Calvary. I want to just at the beginning of our time together, uh, draw, draw attention. We're so grateful to have David Frush uh, help lead us in, in worship through music. Uh, maybe you know, and my mic is acting all weird right now all of a sudden. Sorry about that. Uh, maybe you know that about nine months ago, Justin Hudnell, who has been leading our worship ministry, he agreed to step into an, another position to further serve the church uh, in all of our groups and, and all that. Uh, David helping us out for the foreseeable future while we are in this search enables Justin to actually do that job that he agreed to do about nine months after the fact. And so we are grateful to have his leadership in here. Someone who's as capable as David is, uh, but also just his heart for worship and his, his love of pointing other people to worship him as well. So I'm so grateful to have him uh, helping lead us uh, for, this, for this season. We'll see if that works. But we are continuing our series that we are calling Winsome Living, uh, where we look at the life of Daniel in the book of Daniel. Uh, look at him and his companions. This is at a time where God's people have been conquered. They are exiled. They've been carted off to this land of Babylon. And while there, they find themselves in this culture that doesn't value God, the God, nor does it value what God calls them to value. And we thought this might be a beneficial series as we find ourselves in a culture that doesn't always value God or what God calls us to value. And so we've been looking at, at this series to see oh, how might we learn from their lives, their commitment to following God so that we can live in a similar way here. And we're in Daniel chapter 3, which is perhaps the most famous of the stories within the book of Daniel, as, uh, as Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah are thrown into the fiery furnace, or as they are called by their pagan, pagan names all throughout the story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's more catchy, works better for kids' songs that way too, anyways. So we are in this story, uh, and the first thing that's all set up, the, the, the stage is set for all the drama that comes from the story, from this first decree that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, gives. And this takes place over verses 1 through 7. So I'm going to read for us uh, verse 1, and then we'll skip down a little bit further on. But this sets the stage for all that's happening here. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. And he set up in the plain of Dura, this, this place on the outskirts of the city of Babylon, in the province of Babylon. And then uh, skip down to verse four. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this, uh, this image built, and then the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations and languages. When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. So here we have the, the stage set for, for what was read for us a little bit earlier, that Nebuchadnezzar builds this image or statue that's about 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. Now, we're not told what this statue is of. Is it a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself? Is it of one of his gods? Is it more of an obelisk? And by that, just think the, the Washington Monument. Uh, is, it, is it that instead? Which, when you have the dimensions of 90 feet by nine feet, that's really weird proportions if you're going to do a human. Uh, and so what might it be? We don't know. 
And, and maybe the fact that we're not told what the statue is of should point us to the truth that the statue doesn't matter, that it's not important. It's, the focus is on how do these three faithful Jewish men respond when confronted with this? The only thing that we do know about the statue is that it's equated with Nebuchadnezzar's gods in verse 12 and 14 and 18. So again, whenever something's repeated, it should make us take note. It keeps referring to the, the response of these three men as not worshiping the golden image or the image and Nebuchadnezzar's gods. So whatever this is of, it's equated with Nebuchadnezzar's gods. As a, as a little side note before we go any further, uh, if you were with us last week or if you've read Daniel chapter 2, uh, you might remember that, that it all takes place around this image that King Nebuchadnezzar has about this statue that ends, up, uh, that ends up representing a variety of kingdoms or kings. And we're told that Nebuchadnezzar is the golden head of the statue. He's part of the statue which is then destroyed, it crumbles, and God himself sets up a kingdom that will last forever. As we get into chapter three, it sure reads like the one takeaway that Nebuchadnezzar had was a statue, you say? That sounds like a great idea. Completely forgetting about the destruction and how God alone is worthy of being praised in this way. Oh, how quickly we forget. Uh, anyways, so to get back to the story, this image, this statue is built and Nebuchadnezzar says, when you hear the music of all of these instruments, you are to fall down and worship it. A failure to do so means that you are to be cast into the fiery furnace. The way that it reads, it's, it's the, the furnace is like right there. So you can see it. He's, he's like, you will be killed in that furnace there which is uh, probably picked just for its convenience. We, we know from Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter two, at the end of chapter three, that he's more of a rip people off limb by limb type of guy. So this would really be a downgrade in terms of punishment for him. But there's the scene set for us. This image is built. You are to worship it when you hear the music. And the music starts playing. And people fall down to worship, except for three people. And here we get into some angry accusations about those three people in verses 8 through 15. So three, we are told, don't worship. And this would have been a really large gathering of people that, that Nebuchadnezzar had called in front of him. And it's so big that he doesn't realize that three people that he put in leadership positions aren't worshiping, aren't obeying like he's called them to do. But they are noticed. We're told that some of the Chaldeans, these would have been Babylonians who were considered wise men at the time. They see that, that uh, they are not falling down to worship the statue. And so they go to the king and they say, you know those men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's told from the perspective of the Babylonians, so we'll keep using their fake names. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they aren't obeying you. They aren't worshiping your image or worshiping your gods. And you get this little bit of envy in, in how they're responding to it. They specifically bring up their heritage, their nationality, their ethnicity, and their titles. Like this little bit of envy, like these outsiders aren't obeying you. You know, the ones that you put in positions that could have gone to good Babylonian men, they're not obeying you. And so the king is in this, in this furious rage, the passage says, and he calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in front of him. And, he, and he's asking questions, but they're, they're rhetorical accusations. He's been told what has happened, and he's making these accusations about these men at the same time. 
I want us to try to imagine the pressure of the situation. These three men are called in front of this king that we know flies off the handle really quickly. He likes ripping people's limbs off and they know that they have gone against what he said to do. The the crowd is still all gathered. All the eyes are on them. You can almost see the Chaldeans in the corner smirking at their fate that is sealed. The, The punishment is brought up again. Did not I tell you that anyone who doesn't do this, they will be cast into the fiery furnace. And it's almost like that fiery furnace right there, the one you can see. Can you imagine the pressure in this situation to just give in, to apologize, say, I'm sorry, can can we have another opportunity? Can the band strike up again? We'll we'll do it right this time. Can you imagine the pressure in that moment with the king and all his power and authority, with all the crowd around them watching them, with, with seeing their fate right there? Wouldn't it just be easier to give in in that moment? Let alone the fact that they could probably come up with a variety of reasons why it's, it's better to give in. I mean, you think of all the, the Jewish people that are captive in, in Babylon. Think of all the good that they could do to help their people. Well, they can't do that if they lose their positions of authority, if they lose their leadership roles. What good would their death do to anyone? They, they can't be a light for God in the dark culture of Babylon if they're dead. And they know that there's only one true God in this world. So this, this statue that's in front of them, it's a fake. It's meaningless. Can't they just pretend to bow down to it since they know it's not real? And yet these three men do not give in to the pressures to give in. Instead, they possess a courageous confidence in their God, which we see over verses 16 through 18. They, they feel all this pressure to surrender. It would be so much easier if they just gave in, and yet they don't. They have this courageous confidence in their God. And, and you see that in the, in the first bit of their response. It's not, oh, we didn't think we'd get caught, or, ah, what a bummer, can we, can we like lie our way out of it? They, they say with, we really have nothing to say about the matter. We, we know we did wrong. There's no defense this isn't an accident. We, we know what has happened here. They start with this really bold statement. Nebuchadnezzar, as he was giving these accusations, he's saying, who is the God who can rescue you? Who can rescue you from my hands, my power, my authority? Who can help you if I am set against you? And these three men answer faithfully. Well, we do have that God and we know he can save and we expect him to do a mighty work at this time. That's what they go to. This is where, what the, the courageous confidence they, they have comes from. They say, we have a God who can do that. He's able. We have a God that we expect to do that. We always expect him to do an incredible work. But the crux of their confidence comes to us in verse 18. It says, but if not, even if he doesn't save us, even if he doesn't do what we, we know he can, what we expect him to, even if he doesn't do what, uh, work in a way that we would like, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. See, they, they have this confidence that comes from the fact that God is able to do all, 
that they expect God to do all. And yet, even if he doesn't work in this way, we know that he alone is worthy of our adoration, our affection, our worship. See, their their confidence is rooted in the fact of who God is, that he is this God with all power, with all knowledge, with all holiness, with, with all perfection, with all authority. And so we know that he is able to do any work that, that we might come across. And more than that, he is the God with all love, with all care and compassion and grace and mercy. And so that we know that God is working in the lives of his people for our good and for his glory. And yet that doesn't mean, despite that being who our God is, that doesn't mean that he uh, protect, or, uh, has it so that we are prevented from experiencing hostility or hardships from outside forces or furnaces. Now, for, for us, that's the same God that we have, and, and we don't always know why we still experience those difficulties, why we still go through moments. Why was this allowed to happen in my life? Why, why did this occur on this world? We, we don't always know the answer to those questions, but we do know the same thing that these men did, that our God's character will never change that our God's willingness to work in the lives of people will never change. Our God's ability to work will never change. So even if we don't understand why something is happening, we are rooted in the truth of who this God is. And so that even if he doesn't work in the way that we are hoping, or we would like it if that happened, that never changes the fact that he alone is worthy of worship. And we see that in the life of these three men that they say, we have a God who's able. Who is the God who can save you from my hand? Our God can. Our God alone can. We we have a God that we expect to work. We, We know that we deserve this punishment. We have disobeyed you, and we expect God to work in this time. And yet, even if he doesn't, he still alone is more worthy than any statue you could put up, any person you call for us to worship. And so we will be confident and faithful to him. After hearing this response, Nebuchadnezzar gets even more mad, which we're already told he's in a furious rage. The description here, it says that his face changes. You ever have those moments where you just see someone's expression just take over their entire face? That is the rage that this man is feeling. And he says, throw them into the fiery furnace. Get rid of them, punish them in this way. This takes place over verses 19 through 23. But more than that, his, his anger is so much that he calls for the furnace to be heated up seven times more than it usually was. It's so much so that the soldiers who are taking uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throwing them into the furnace, they die when they get close to it because the heat is so much. The way furnaces were at the time, uh, they, they had this large opening and, and a, uh, at the top and a smaller opening on the side. It probably would have been there because they used it to make that statue. Uh, and so they're getting close to the top to throw them in the, the, the opening there and the heat kills them and the three men fall in. The point that this shows us is that we can be very certain of how deadly this will be for these three. And, and the honest part is the story could have ended there. And the point is still valid. That God alone is worthy of being worshiped. That he is capable of doing all things. That we expect him to do a mighty work. And yet even if he doesn't, he still alone is worthy. 
We can have confidence in him. We are faithful to him over anything else. That point would have stood even if the story ends there. But the story doesn't end there. Because we have a God who's able, because we have a God who we expect to work, we do know that he doesn't always work in the way that we would like. And yet he does so here as we see this incredible divine deliverance which occurs over verses 24 through 27. Let me, let me read this for us here. So these three men fell into the fiery furnace and then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, uh, did we not cast three men bound in the fire? And they answered to the kings, the true o king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps and prefects and the governors and the king counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the body of those men. The hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of the fire had come upon them. So we're told that this, this fire is so potent that the soldiers, when they even got near it, they were killed because of the heat. And these men who were thrown into the fire completely survived. More than that, there are no effects of the fire on them. I don't know if you've ever been to a bonfire before, but I swear I still have clothes that smell like smoke years after the fact. And here these men were inside the fire and there's not a whiff of smoke on them. What more proof do we need that God is more powerful than Tide Pods? And if you take just one thing away from this morning, please don't let it be that. <laughs> but the thing that, that made King Nebuchadnezzar marvel, it says, is as he was looking into the fire through the, through the side, he sees a fourth man. And he does some quick counting. Wasn't it three that we thrown in there? And, and the suck-ups are like, yeah, king, you're so right, it was three. It's like, but how come there's four? And more than that, one of them has the appearances of the son of the gods. Now, we don't know what that means. Does that mean this other one is eight feet tall? Or they're sparkling like a diamond? Or they don't quite have human characteristics? We, we have no idea. But it's something that the king noticed. We also aren't told who this fourth person is. Is it the angel Gabriel, like the Talmud says? Is it the, the angel of the Lord who shows up all throughout the Old Testament? Is the angel of the Lord Jesus just before he's born uh, by, by Mary? We aren't told in this passage. But it's in seeing that there, there is this fourth figure in the fire with them. That is what causes Nebuchadnezzar to change. He was so angry, it took over his entire face. And now he has this drastic change where he calls them to come out. Because in this moment, by seeing this figure with them in the fire, he realizes that yes, God is able. He realizes that yes, God can and does rescue his people. He realizes that he is the most high God. He is the answer to the question that the king asked himself, who is the God who can rescue you from my hand? And he sees, well, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that God. 
But he doesn't stop there. Nebuchadnezzar then issues a second decree. The whole passage started off with the first decree. You must worship this image and nothing else. You have to do so. But now we have a decree that completely overchanges the first. Let me read for us verses 28 through 30. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. I told you, he loves it. And their houses be laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Having a hard time turning. Uh, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So we we get this incredible change uh, from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar. He starts by praising God, something we saw him do at the end of chapter two. And he gives some descriptions about that. He praises God for delivering his people, for sending an angel. But what is the focus of his words? What gets most of his attention? Well, it's the faithfulness of these three men. He talks about how, how they uh, were faithful to their God, that they didn't serve any other gods except for him, that they yielded up their own bodies rather than to compromise, that they uh, set aside the king's command. He, he's the one saying, they ignored me. Imagine the gall to do that. And they did all this because they had this confidence in their God. That's the focus of his words here. So, so get this, in the midst of this incredible story, What is most impactful to Nebuchadnezzar, more so than not smelling like smoke, more so than figuring out who is this fourth man in the fire, more so than the miracle itself. He saw something incredible happen, and yet what he says is more incredible than that is the faithfulness of these three men who followed their God rather than anything else. As we've been in the series, we, we've been looking at it as, as ways to see how do we live in this, this culture that we are called to, because it's so difficult to find the balance of how do we live here. It, there's the temptation to assimilate, to just give in the pressure that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego felt. Isn't it easier to just do this? Wouldn't it, uh, wouldn't it make less waves? There's that pull to give in there. There's also the, the, the pull on the other side, to separate, to cut ourselves off, to think, that we are better than, we don't need to be part of this culture, and, and both are wrong approaches. And so how do we navigate the balance between those two? And this becomes all the more difficult as we come across the, these moments where we are called to draw the line. That there is a point that we can go no further. I was with you up until this point. King Nebuchadnezzar, I had no problem serving you until you called for me to worship something false. There comes a point when we have to draw a line. And that's a hard pressure to, to know when do we do that? How do we respond in those moments? Let alone when you act to the fact that just because a line is drawn doesn't mean that things stop. In fact, the pressure starts to become even more. And so how do we respond in those moments? Here is where I will go. I can go no further. How do we respond when there's still pressure to keep going, to give in, to go further? 
I think this is so beneficial for us to talk about because it seems like Christians, or at least those claiming to be Christians, have felt like or have acted like there's only one response in those moments. That when we feel pressure to cross this line, to go further than what we know God has called us to do, that Christians have acted like we have one tool, and that is battle. That if you are calling for me to go further than what God has called me to do, I will fight you tooth and nail. And there certainly are times where that might be the appropriate response to, to this pressure to give in, to go further than the line. But is that really all that we have? I think if all that we have is battle, if the only tool in our arsenal is culture war, then there's a couple problems with that. First off, we're not being winsome. Our lives are not lived in a way that's, that's helping others to turn to and follow God. Second, it's not faithful to the text, which gives us a variety of other options. And then third, for those people who are constantly fighting, and they say on behalf of God, I start to wonder, are we? This God who doesn't need our defense, this God who is able to do anything, even a culture that, that doesn't value him, that if all we're doing is fighting when we feel this pressure to cross the line, I start to wonder, are we fighting for God or just ourselves? Because we don't want to lose ground in the culture or because we like the hostility. I'm not sure. But this is where I'm grateful for the book of Daniel, which gives us uh, other tools in our tool belt to know how do we respond to this pressure to cross this line, to give in, to go further than we think God has called us to. We, we saw one of them back in chapter one. Where, the, where Daniel draws a line. I, I will not be eating. I will not be taking this diet that you're calling me to. And he doesn't battle. He doesn't throw a hissy fit. He instead says, is it okay that I don't? He asks. It's like the opposite of battle. He, he gently asks, but then he goes even further than that. He says, hold me accountable. See if you see any change in, in appearance or behavior or mentality. See if me being faithful has any sort of negative impact. So asking... Uh, or being gentle in these times when we feel pressure across the line could be one of the tools that we have. And then we have another one here in chapter three, and I do recognize it's not gonna be a popular one. How do we respond when we feel this pressure across the line? Well, we remain faithful and we deal with the consequences of being faithful. That by refusing to cross this line, there may be a time when, when us doing so leads to some sort of results, which could be punishment or shame, or loss of opportunity, or whatever it might be. And yet I think there's, there's two reasons in our text why this is not only a, 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 valuable or a viable option for us, a tool to respond to the pressure to cross the line. It is, there's two, two reasons in our text why I think it's not only viable, but the preferred option. One of the best responses that we can have to that pressure to cross the line. And the first reason that we have, the reason why being faithful and dealing with any consequences, no matter what the results might be, remaining faithful to our God, why that is a, a, a proper response to this pressure to cross the line is because I think living as God calls us to live is perhaps the best apologetic that the church has this day. 
Now, apologetics is this branch of, of thought where it, it defends uh, Chris, uh, the truth of specifically here Christianity. So it deals with questions like, how do we know God is real? How do we know Jesus was really raised from the dead? How can we say that, that Christianity is the one way to God and salvation? So it answers some of those questions. Uh, now, it's, it's a very good branch of thinking. There is some limitations to it. I, I'm not certain that anyone can be argued into Christianity. That if we just have really good uh, uh, talking points, if, if we can debate really well, that's going to make people follow Jesus. I'm not sure it can do that. Now, apologists, or, or at least good apologists, would say, yeah, we're not trying to do that, which is fantastic. It, it's more trying to clear out hurdles that might get in the people's way. Like maybe someone is, is close to following Jesus, but it's like, I just can't get over it. How can you say that God is real when there's evil in the world or pain? How can you say God is real when we don't have evidence? And if we can remove that hurdle, maybe people might be closer to following Jesus that way. And when it's done appropriate like that, it's fantastic. It's such a gift to the church. And yet what I think is actually a way that can help people follow God, that can help people turn to him and, and trust in him, and be faithful to him is by seeing evidence of Christians faithfully living as God has called them to live, no matter the consequences, no matter the, uh, the results of doing so. So this is living a life of love that God calls us to live, of being patient with, with others. It's seeking a, a the good of other people in a sacrificial way. It's a life of joy, emphasizing justice and mercy, of valuing other, all people as God has said that they are valuable. That, that in living in this way, I think is incredibly winsome, which is our series that we have with flickering lights. So I think it's a, a way that's winsome, that people see uh, Christians living as God has called them to live, even if there are negative consequences for doing that, that I think might cause people to turn and trust in God as well. And I think there's a couple, uh, I think there's a couple of reasons why we can say this uh, does happen this way. For one, it does happen this way. I've seen it in my life. That the reason why I'm following Jesus is, is varied, but, but one of them is because I've had faithful Christians that I saw living, that, I, that caused me to ask the question, what do you have that I don't? And how do I have that? And maybe you have a similar story where there was a Christian in your life that you saw how they were faithfully living for God and that either helped you to turn to God or helped you to continue to turn to him as you needed that strength and encouragement. Further, it's in our text. We said that Nebuchadnezzar is most struck by the faithfulness of these three men, that they would ignore the king that they would lay down their lives to be faithful to him over anything else, that is what causes Nebuchadnezzar to go and praise God himself. I think faithfully living in this way, even if there are consequences of doing so, is a way that helps other people follow God as well. Now, there might be some objections to this. Uh, we might look at this culture and say, there are parts of, of Christian belief and Christian living that are repulsive to non-Christians. Those could be views on sexuality or the exclusive claims of Christianity. That when we say that it's only in Jesus that we could be saved, this is offensive to those who say something like, well, I'm so glad that you found something that works for you, but that's just not what works for me. 
And we keep trying to say, no, you need to understand, this isn't something that just works for me. This is what is the only thing that works for anybody. And as we're doing that, we end up getting called uh, certain names for, for that. And yet, despite that being the case in our culture, I still think this is true. I still think faithfully living for God is the best apologetic that we have in this culture. And, and one of that is this is still happening. We still see people turning and worshiping God, even, even and especially coming out of non-Christian homes, people who have never been in a church before. The mere presence of a Christian in their life, you might be that Christian in their life, of seeing how you are faithfully, albeit imperfectly, following God, that might help them to put their trust in him too. That's the positive example. The, the negative example is that while the church in America, attendance in church in America is in decline, there's, there's no arguing against that. In fact, I might argue it's probably really good for the church that this is happening, but we do not have time to make that point. I'm happy to talk about it later. But uh, while the church is, especially faithfully churches, they are in decline attendance-wise. But that rate of decline has nothing on what we would call mainline churches or mainline denominations. These are churches that have given in. They've crossed that line to be more palatable to the culture that we are in. That the rate of decline in those churches is astronomical. It sure seems like, being, uh, like giving in to the culture around us is, is less winsome than being faithful to to what God calls us to do, calls us how to live. And so I so said there's two reasons. Why, why do we think that it is a valuable and, and uh, a viable option to remain faithful regardless of the consequences when we feel this pressure to cross the line? Well, it's because that's the best apologetic that we might have. But the second reason is because in these times where we feel that pressure across the line, we are reminded time and time again that God is with us in these moments. Why do we think this is valuable? Because God is with us in these moments. We can be confident that he is there. We can be confident in who he is, that he is a God who's able, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, that he is a God that we expect to work, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego expected. And even if he doesn't, he still is more worthy than anything else we might come across. Again, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. And so in these moments, we remain faithful to this God. We live faithfully for him because that's not only for our good, but it's for the good of those around us who might see our, our living for God and, and turn to him as well. And it's ultimately for his glory. Well, it gets us to the question of, I mean, how do we do this? It, it's so hard to live in this way. It's so hard to, to navigate the balance between assimilate and separate. It, it's so hard to know when do we, uh, when do we draw the line? When do we, uh, how do we respond when we feel this pressure to cross the line? It's so hard to continue to live this way regardless of the consequences when consequences are terrifying. And so how do we live faithfully in this way? What's the reminder that our God is with us? It's the same thing that these three men had. See, this isn't a story that's, that's preserved because, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're just the best uh, people on the planet. They're, they're so good at following God. No, it has nothing to do with that. It, it, this, this story could have been any three individuals who trusted in their God and the story would have been the same. They aren't better than us. What makes them remarkable in the story is they recognize that their God was with them in the story. 
And the same God who preserved them when standing before the king, preserved them when standing in the fire, who preserved them from this moment before and on is the same God who is with us no matter what we might face as well. So this is a weird point, but I'm going to try to make it and hopefully it works. What I think the greatest gift that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego received in this passage is that they, were, they weren't saved before going into the furnace. So it's not that they were saved before going into the furnace. Because God could have done that, right? It's the same thing. God rescued them in the fire. Wouldn't it be the same to rescue them from the fire? They didn't even have to go in there. It also could have been something to where God preserved them before they even showed up on the scene. Maybe he arranged things to where these three men weren't there that day. Like Daniel. Daniel's not here. God protected him from being part of this. God could have protected them from being present. But what I think is the greatest gift is that God didn't do any of that. And why is that? Well, because what's going to happen the next time they face a consequence and if they were protected from it? Or what's going to happen uh, the next time that, that they're going through something like this and, and maybe God doesn't rescue them in that time, which he may not. Instead, what they receive, the greatest gift that they saw, what they get to then show all people who trust in God afterwards is not that God was protecting them from something, but that God was protecting them within something. That God was present with them in the difficulty. That there was a fourth man in that fire. I think that is the greatest gift that they receive, that they were not left alone. And that's the same teaching that's given to us. How do we navigate this, this balance that's so difficult to do? How do we know when to draw the line? How do we respond in the pressure to cross that line? How do we do any of this life that God has called us to do? I'm supposed to be an example to other people. I, I'm barely hanging on to following God as it is. I, I feel like I'm making so many mistakes. How do we do any of this? Well, it's the same truth that we see in the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's the same truth for all people who are trusting in God. Now that he has not left us alone in the midst of it, he is with us. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 35, which I don't have on the screen. Sorry, I, I let you down, uh, Jess. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as we're going through any of this, will this separate us from the love of God? And now the screen is accurate. Verse 36, as it is written, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Doesn't that feel like something that, that just saps you of all hope? Don't you feel the temptation to give in, to cross the line in that moment? How do we still hang on when this is the life that's in front of us? These are tremendous consequences. Well, there is confidence, courageous confidence. Verse 37, no. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These things, no matter what we might face, no matter the consequences, they cannot separate us from our God because our God has joined us in those moments. 
We see that in the story. As there is a fourth man in the fire. They saw God was with them. We see that on the cross as Jesus goes to endure all that we ought to have, all that we might on our behalf. We see God is with us. We see that in examples of our story. How did I make it through this moment? How did I have the strength to do this? We saw God is with us. None of these things are able to separate us from God because it's in these difficulties that God is very much so present with us. None of this can take us away from, uh, from him because he is with us in these difficulties. And you can be confident about that. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for the example of these three men. And most importantly, and it's not because of anything unique to these three men, but it's the fact that you are the God who is with them. We are so glad to have these stories, to have the reminder that you do not change, that the same God who rescues within the furnace is the same God who works within our lives, no matter what we might be facing. We are grateful that the same God who, who showed that he is able to deliver these three from the hand of Nebuchadnezzar is the same God who tells us that nothing will be able to rip us from you being with us. We are so glad that you would call us to be part of your, uh, your work in reaching other people, that our lives that you are enabling us to do might be the things that helps other people turn to you or put their trust even more in you. We are so delighted to have a God like this, that we could be so confident in, that we can remain faithful to, because no one else, no one else is worthy. So it's to you that we pray. Amen.